0: Well, we're going to read the Bible together just now, so if you have a a Bible close to you, you might want to turn with me to John chapter 2, John's Gospel chapter 2. If you've got one of the Red Pew Bibles, you'll find the reading on page 1065, 1065. And we're going to read um, the story of Jesus' first uh, miracle in in, uh, John's Gospel, Jesus at the wedding of Cana. So, uh, page 1064, 1065, John chapter 2, I'm going to read from verses 1 to 11. John 2, 1 to 11, this is the Word of God. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, Everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. This, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Cana in Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. Amen. We trust that God will bless to us this reading from his word.
1: Well, it's lovely to be together in church this evening. If you have a Bible with you, please do open it to John chapter 2, that passage that we read together earlier. One of the things that we really encourage folks to do here in Hill Street is to open the Bible as the sermon has been preach so that you can follow along for yourself to make sure that what we're saying is here. So please do open it to John chapter 2. We're right in the middle of summer, which means that we're right in the middle of wedding season, aren't we? Maybe you've been to a wedding this summer or you're looking forward to one that's coming up in the year, or maybe you're celebrating a wedding anniversary at this time of year. Weddings can be such great occasions, can't they? There are times to celebrate with friends and family. Everyone gets dressed up and makes an effort to look half respectable. More often than not, everybody eats far too much food. There tends to be dancing too, but at that stage, I'm done. I'm looking to sneak off for a seat somewhere, not enjoying the dancing that much. In Jesus' culture, weddings were a big deal as well. And part of the reason why I love this story and why I think it's such a great story is because I think it gives us a little bit of an insight into Jesus' humanity. It gives us a glimpse into what he was like as a person. It seems as though he enjoyed celebrating in the wedding festivities, hanging around with ordinary people, celebrating, eating lots of food, generally just having a good time. But I want us to think this evening about why this story is here Why does John feel the need to include it in his gospel? In fact, why does Jesus do this miracle at all? What's going on, and what does it mean, if anything, for us today? I mean, think about it. This seems like a pretty weird thing to do as your first miracle, doesn't it? If you were coming to save the world and hope that people might trust and believe in you, then you would want to make a pretty big statement with your first miracle— And this does to some extent, but it still seems a little less impressive than, say, feeding 5,000 people or calming a storm or even raising someone from the dead. Why not start with a miracle like that? Why start by lifting a dying party to incredible new heights by turning water into wine? Well, before we can answer some of those questions, we must say a word about why we can have confidence that this miracle really happened. It is perhaps one of the most famous miracles that Jesus performed, but it's also one of the miracles that people are hugely skeptical about. Many people doubt that something like this could have actually really happened. Reynolds Price was an American poet and author and professor of English literature, He wrote a book called The Three Gospels. It's a a literary analysis of two of the New Testament accounts of Jesus' life, Mark's Gospel and John's Gospel. And then he also retells both of those Gospels in the book in his own words. And when talking about John's Gospel and this particular part of John's Gospel in particular, he's been very helpful for me. Essentially, he argues that if you were just looking to make the story and mission of Jesus up, If it was all a fictional masterpiece intended to deceive the masses, then why on earth would you begin like this? He argues that John, the author of this gospel, was convinced of the reality of this miracle and so records it for us from the perspective of an eyewitness. Reynolds Price is very critical of the idea that John was just making all of this up as some sort of fanciful or symbolic story. Here's a direct quote. He writes, Why invent, for the inaugural sign of Jesus' great career, a miraculous solution to a mere social oversight? Now, I would want to argue that this is more than just a mere social oversight here. But nonetheless, the point remains. Why would you make it up? If you were looking to begin your account of the life of Jesus, why would you make it up in this particular way? The most logical solution, Price suggests, is that this is the account of an eyewitness who really saw these things, believed, and was convinced that they happened as they recorded for us. And so we too should take them at face value. So what do we learn about Jesus from this little story? It's very simple tonight. We're going to see three things. Who he is, what he has come to do, and what he has come to offer us. Who he is, what he has come to do and what he comes to offer us. There's a bit of overlap between those three things as we go along, but let's get stuck into point one, who he is. In performing this miracle and saving this wedding, Jesus does something here that only God could do. His turning of water into wine isn't some magician's trick. He's not there to provide the evening entertainment at the wedding. He is doing something that only God can do but of course he's doing more than that. You see, you have to understand that the master of the banquet was the person who was in charge of this whole wedding feast. He was the one who was meant to make sure that everything was running smoothly. He was the one who was responsible for serving the correct wine at the proper time. Really, it was his job to make the party great. And in verses 9 and 10 of the passage, he is the one who is most impressed with the wine that Jesus has produced. And so one of the things we're meant to see here is that in rescuing this party and in turning this water into the finest wine at the feast, Jesus is saying something incredibly important about himself. He is really saying that he is the ultimate master of the banquet. He is really saying that he is Lord of the greatest feast that there will ever be. What he's doing here is actually giving us a foretaste in this miracle of what he will ultimately one day accomplish. He will bring about the greatest feast and the most joyful wedding party ever. One of the things that John wants us to understand from this account is that Jesus has come to bring us joy. Jesus has come to bring us joy Sometimes we can lose sight of that very easily because life can be full of so many difficulties and so little joy. But Christianity teaches that Jesus has come to bring joy and that one of the things that ought to mark us out as his people is that we know something of that deep joy that he has come to bring. So I wonder when when you think about the Christian life, do you think about it as being a joyful life? Or when you think about Jesus, do you think about Him as someone who has come to bring joy to your life? Or what about your friends and family and work colleagues or even other members of the church family here? Do they think of you as a person who knows Jesus and as such someone whose life is marked by the joy of knowing Him? If we're honest, so often Christianity in our culture is caricatured as being nothing more than a moral straitjacket, and sometimes as Christians we perpetuate that caricature rather than challenge it. And so when we begin to think about why why lots of people aren't Christians or lots of people reject the Christian faith, perhaps young people in particular, perhaps some of those students that Josh was talking to us about, sometimes they can say things like, I just want to enjoy my life. And so being a Christian means that I I can't. Well, Jesus here throws down the gauntlet to that idea and to those people and says, if you believe that, then you've missed the point entirely because I have come so that you might have deep and lasting and eternal joy, a joy that far outweighs anything that this world can offer. And perhaps one of the things that we need to remember and regain confidence in today is that being a Christian really is amazing. It really is the best thing in the whole world. Yes, there is suffering. Yes, there is sacrifice. Yes, there is self-denial. Yes, it is hard at times. But those are just a means to an end. The miracle of Jesus turning water into wine is meant to help us remember that Jesus has come to bring joy To ordinary people like you and me, He is the Lord of the feast. And life, true life, life in all its fullness, is to be found in Him and Him alone. So that's who He is. He is the Lord of the feast. What about what He has come to do? We've already seen that He has come to bring joy. But John tells us more than that here. Verse 4 is the key. When wine runs out at a wedding like this, it was a a big deal. It was the end of the celebration, really. And in those days when weddings were big social occasions, they could have lasted up to a week. I mean, it sounds awful to me, way too many renditions of Rock the Boat to sit through. But people would have partied and celebrated hard, but only as long as the wine lasted. And so here the wine had run out. And in a shame and honor culture like this one, that was just about the worst thing that could happen at the wedding. And to run out of wine this early on in the feast would have brought shame and then ultimately guilt to this young couple. And their life together would have gotten off to the worst possible start. There would have forever been a stigma attached to them in this little community in Cana. They would have been known as the couple who couldn't supply enough wine at their own wedding feast. They were facing shame and guilt. And so Mary understands the seriousness of the situation. She tries to get Jesus to do something about it in verse 3. But look at how Jesus responds in verse 4. He says, Woman, why do you involve me? My time, the NIV says. Hour is what the ESV says. My hour has not yet come. Seems a little rude. Harsh even. If I did this to Helen now, I would still get a thick ear. Why does Jesus respond this way to his mum? Well, to answer that question, we have to think about the second part of what Jesus says in verse four. "My time or my R R is a better translation than time, has not yet come." So what does "R" mean here? It's a phrase that is used a lot throughout John's gospel. The next slide, I hope, will help us to, to see that. We'll do a little quick whistle tour. John's gospel here to see how that word is used. If you turn with me very quickly to John chapter 7 and verse 30, you'll see it recorded for us there. John chapter 7 verse 30, at this they tried to seize him, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. And then chapter 8 and verse 20, He spoke these things while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offerings were put, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then over to chapter 12 and verse 27. These are the words of Jesus. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this And then chapter 13 and verse 1, where Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples, John tells us it was just before the Passover feast, Jesus knew that the hour had come for him to leave this world and to go to the Father. And then lastly, in chapter 17, when Jesus is praying for himself, he says, "'Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you.'" It's repeated consistently throughout John's gospel. So what does it mean? Jesus' hour means his death. And so when Jesus says his hour has not yet come here in John chapter 2, he is saying that the time for him to die has not yet come. And so even here in his very first miracle in John's gospel, he is thinking about his death. So back to the dilemma of this young couple. They're facing shame and guilt Mary comes to Jesus, says, Jesus, they're going to run out of wine. Son, you've got to do something about this. Jesus says, woman, why are you telling me this? It's not yet time for me to die. Still seems like a very strange response. What's going on here? Well, we're meant to see again that Jesus is thinking beyond this wedding. He is thinking beyond this immediate embarrassing situation. He has seen past even the pleas of his mother He is thinking about something much, much bigger than just this wedding. In fact, Jesus here is thinking about his own wedding. Maybe you're thinking, well, who did Jesus marry? When was his wedding? I don't remember learning about that in Sunday school. Well, the wedding that Jesus is thinking about here is an altogether different kind of wedding. It's the wedding described for us in Revelation chapter 19, the marriage of Jesus and his bride, the church, the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so here at this wedding in this little village, Jesus is thinking about a much bigger picture than everyone else. He is thinking about how one day he will deal with the shame and guilt of his own bride. He is thinking about his own wedding, and he is thinking in particular about what it will cost him to be with his bride. Weddings are expensive and costly. Some of you know that much better than others. People go to great lengths to make sure that the guests have a great day, but no wedding will ever be as good as the marriage supper of the Lamb, because no wedding has ever cost as much. It cost Jesus his very life in order to pay for that wedding. And so the only way that Jesus can get to his wedding day, a day of feasting and celebration, is through the hour of his death. And we can only have the joy and forgiveness that he offers to us through his sorrow. One writer says we can only drink from the cup of joy and blessing if he first drinks from the cup of God's wrath. And so Jesus here is thinking about his death. It's always in the back of his head. We cannot understand him at all unless we come to terms with the significance of his death. Even here in the middle of a wedding at the beginning of his ministry, as he announces himself on the public stage, he is thinking about his own death. So why does that matter for us? Well, it means that we cannot just have Jesus as a mere example to follow and ignore the significance of his death. Some people might reject lots of the the doctrine of Christianity. Increasingly, it has become trendy to reject doctrine and say things like, let's just live like Jesus lived or love like Jesus loved. Let's just imitate his life, but forget all of the awkward stuff about him coming to die for sins, etc. Let's just park the fact that that in itself is something of a doctrinal position to take. But to think like that is to misunderstand Jesus entirely. Why? Because Jesus did not come primarily to live. He came primarily to die. And so when he raises Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11, he is thinking about his death. When he is washing the feet of the disciples in John chapter 13, he is thinking about his death. When he is turning water into wine in John chapter 2 at a wedding in Cana, he is thinking about his own death. And if we want to understand the real biblical Jesus, then we must come to terms with the fact that he came to die, and that only through his death can we know what it really means to live. Another reason why all of this matters is because it helps us to understand how Jesus wants us to relate to him. Let me ask you, if you're a Christian here tonight, what do you think of when you think about your relationship with Jesus? How do you feel as though you're supposed to relate to him? See, Jesus doesn't just want to relate to us like a school teacher to a pupil, or even primarily like a father to a child. Jesus wants to relate to us like a groom to a bride, a husband to a wife. That is the level of intimacy that Jesus wants to have with us. We are his bride, the church. We are in union with him. We are covenantally bound to him. We are joined with him, for better or for worse. This is what Jesus has come to do. He has come to be with his bride. He has come to make it possible for us to relate to him as a lover relates to their beloved. That is the intimacy of the relationship that Jesus wants with us so that leads us then to to think about our final point. What is it that Jesus has come to offer? We've already seen that he comes to bring us joy, that he comes to bring us intimate relationship with himself. There's one other thing that I want us to see from this miracle about what Jesus has come to offer. Whenever you, you go to a wedding and you arrive at the hotel or the wedding venue after the ceremony, one of the first things that you look for is the table list, isn't it? It's at that point you get to see what the bride and groom really think of you. And at that moment, you decide if you've spent too much or too little on their wedding present. Generally, of course, it's the bride and groom who sit at the, the top table with their bridal party. Then it's close family who occupy those prominent tables. They can see and hear everything that's going on. And by the time you get down to the tables with the double digits, those are the people who have just about made the cut, and you want them well out of sight whenever you're doing the speeches. A few years ago, Linda and I watched a watched film. It's a film, a really random, not very well-known film called Table 19, And the whole plot of the movie is based around these guests, there's a picture of them on the screen, who were invited to a wedding, but only really out of politeness. And if truth be told, they ought to have known not to have showed up to the wedding. They're fobbed away off to the back of the room at table 19. None of them know each other or anyone else there. And as the film unfolds, it is just one awkward and boring conversation after another. Whenever you go to a wedding, no one wants to be at table 19. No one wants to spend the whole day making small talk with people that they don't know and trying to impress people that they don't even like. Let me tell you, if you're a Christian, then you will be at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the greatest of all wedding feasts, and you won't be stuck way out of the way at table 19. What Jesus offers us is a seat right at the very top table. What is Christianity? Christianity. It is not primarily an invitation to sign a list of beliefs and say, yep, I agree with all of that, although what we believe does really matter. It is not primarily an invitation to obey a set of rules and regulation, although the rules and regulations of the Bible do really matter. It is not primarily an invitation to hear lots of stuff about God and fill our heads with information about him, although thinking clearly about God really does matter. Christianity, at its core, is an invitation to be the bride at the wedding supper of the Lamb, the greatest wedding party in the whole world. Do you see what Christianity is really all about? Do you see what Jesus offers to us? If we really grasp that, if our hearts really understand that, then I think we ought to see that being a Christian is way, way, way better than most of us think it is. So, what does, it, what does it mean to become a Christian? How do we get in on this wedding feast and take our place at the top table? There are a couple of clues for us in the text here, I think. First thing we've got to do is we've got to admit our problem. How did this miracle come about in the first place? It, becomes, it comes about because the organizers of the wedding admit that they've made a mess of things. In this particular culture, it would have been the groom in particular who was responsible for ordering enough wine. And somewhere along the line here, there is a realization that he has blown it. The groom has failed. And like we said earlier, in a shame and honor culture, it's not just that he's facing an embarrassing situation, it's that he is facing a dishonoring crisis. And that would have had ramifications for the rest of his life. And so somewhere along the line at this wedding party, the groom had to admit that he'd messed things up He hadn't done his job in ordering enough wine. He is facing a crisis entirely of his own making. If you and I are to experience the joy and forgiveness that Jesus offers to us, then first of all, we have to admit that we have blown it. We have to admit that we face a crisis entirely of our own making. We have to face up to the fact that our problem with sin is so, so deep that it is much more than just an embarrassing situation, that it is a crisis, and that it's a crisis that only Jesus can resolve. And so as you think about this story tonight, it's a story perhaps you're familiar with. I wonder, have you admitted your own problem with sin? Do you see how deep that problem really runs? Do you see how deep your need for Jesus and his rescue really is? Because let me tell you, until you understand that, then you won't ever experience the joy and forgiveness that Jesus comes to offer. We have to admit our problem. And once we do that, then the glory of the gospel of grace is that we get what we don't deserve. Notice towards the end of the passage, who is it that gets the credit for the wine that Jesus produces? Look at verses 9 and 10. It says, The master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. Do you see it? It's the bridegroom who gets the credit for the wine, even though he has done absolutely nothing to bring it about. It's a picture, isn't it? It's a picture what God does for us in the gospel. Not only does Jesus clean up our mess, but he gives us his perfect record. Not only does he wipe out our sinful past, but he invites us to a seat right at the very top table and credits us with the privilege of being his. Not only does God deal with our deepest problem, he treats us as though he had always obeyed him as perfectly as Jesus obeyed him. It's all grace. Do you see why the message of Christianity is way, way better than we sometimes think it is? Why wouldn't you want to get in on this? Why wouldn't you want to trust in this Jesus? Why wouldn't you want to be at the great wedding feast of the Lamb? That's what John is asking us as he records these things for us. You know something? One day, one day, some of us will be there together. It's our prayer that all of us here will be at that great wedding feast together. And that until that day, we'll continue to encourage one another and spur one another on to greater faithfulness in the gospel. And that as we do that, we will know something of the deep and lasting joy that only Jesus can offer. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you that we have this story recorded for us so clearly that it helps us to understand more of who you are and what you have come to do and what you have come to offer us. Father, we confess this evening that in much of our Christian experience, we we don't know enough of the joy of the Lord, or we don't make enough of the joy of the Lord, and so we ask this evening that you will refresh us in our hearts, that you will help us to see again just how amazing it is to be a Christian, that we will be marked by joy, that others when they see us and meet us and listen to us and engage with us will know that we have met with Jesus, and have been changed by him. Father, we pray that you will help us to live with that great wedding feast of the lamb in mind, and that because we have that at the very forefronts of our mind, we will live our lives here for you faithfully and looking to honor you and bring you glory. Help us with this as we do this this week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.